Wow. I'll never drink another beer. Beer here. I'll take ten. Hello to all you yummy tartlets and welcome to the Canning Run podcast. Each week we tackle a topic and ask ourselves the essential question, when did things go wrong? In this case, when did things go wrong for fruited sours? Or we ask ourselves, did they go wrong? Remember, we are New England, um, so our information is wicked dank, bro. Uh, but also, we're very region-specific. So a lot of the information, a lot of the beers that we drink are from our region. And also remember, if you hear anything that you think is stupid or not fact-based, let us know. Send us an email. We promise, mildly promise, that we will read it in the next episode and just take a steaming poop all over you and your tape. Love you. <laughs> all right. All right. Fruited fucking sours. What a wild and dangerous game we play here at Canning Run Podcast. Um, I guess we have to start from the beginning. Beginning of time in Belgium. <laughs> Belgium. I'm very interested in like what people used to drink to get drunk. So this is kind of an interesting <laughs> history. It certainly is. And uh, for those of you who don't know, we're talking about Lambics, um, which are an old world style sour beer, which was spontaneously fermented and then aged for long periods of time. Actually, interestingly, originally what happened was this, they had these, they, they had their barrels that they're aging the beer in, they were open and they would spontaneously fer- ferment then. Um, but nowadays that practice isn't utilized because they don't necessarily want specific, um, you know, yeast strains to come in and kind of ruin a good thing. So a lot of what's utilized in today's brewing practices are, are called um, cool ships. What is a cool ship? Oh, great question. Um, Tom, you want to take this away? Yeah, sure. So uh, it's kind of like a, a long, wide pan that's like two feet deep, about, I don't know, 15 feet long and, and five feet wide. And, you know, you just pour your boiling wort in there. And you just got to hope all those little microbes get attracted to that delicious, sweet grain water and <laughs> the magic happens. So, you know, the idea is that you're not allegedly pitching any yeast uh, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the flavors in your surroundings and it's, it is native to your environment. So that's what really kickstarts the fermentation process for uh, lambics and for spontaneously fermented beers so from someone with like a very limited brewing knowledge it's basically like it kind of takes the process of brewing it turns it on its head or instead of like keeping something in an enclosed environment that's like sort of feeding on itself you're kind of letting it feed on like whatever is present in the air almost for a a little bit of time not not feed but yeah exactly it's it's Typically, um, or at least my experiences with it, it's when you have really cold nights in warmer days. So, like, the, you want the cooler nights to bring the temperature down. I don't know what the optimal temperature is. I'm an accountant. But, um, you know, for those, um, for the, the yeast um, microbes, really, to attract to it, it needs to be a specific temperature. 
and and then it's you know from there once it's cooled and at another optimal temperature that I'm not aware of, um, or at least forget, it is then moved to barrels typically for barrel aging. So you know it's in the cool ship for I don't know uh, twelve, fifteen, twenty hours. Yeah, okay. and and it's and and what's interesting about needing that cold like back when refrigeration um, wasn't a thing and air conditioning wasn't a thing, they would have to brew these beers very specifically in the winter and the early spring months. So it's interesting that I, what I was reading was that in the 19, in, in the year of the 1900s, when this beer, when these beers were being brewed, um, they had like 165 days where they could brew these beers. And what's interesting is that now because of global warming, it's down to 140. Wow. So I wow. wonder, I wonder how, how rapid that, that amount of days that you can brew uh, Lambic style beers will decrease right. at least in the, in the way that they have been made. So like places like Cantillon, places like Tree Fontaine and um, who, who still brew in the same locations that they have for a hundred years. Uh, Cause what's interesting is that I didn't notice that Cantillon opened in, in 1900. Um, I did not know that. And I thought that it was like, you know, this, this place has been open since 1750. Yeah. Uh, same. Kind of what I thought you so. know, I, I, I think a lot of the lore surrounds it because it is such like a big deal for a lot of people who like this style of beer, you know? Uh, and obviously we've all had it and it's incredible. It's, it's delightful. But what's interesting that is over time, the amount of time that you can, that you can brew Lambic style beers um, has decreased. And, and I wonder how, how, you know, so it took, theoretically like 115 years to reduce by 25 days about a month i wonder how much that window will close now that we're in like uh, a, a rapid heating right type of it's, it's like an exponential type of yeah. change yeah uh like while we're talking about those the people who are still brewing that style like really like purely can you guys just like list you already said like cantillon and um uh, yeah yeah and can you guys like talk about where those brewers are from and are there any are there any like american brewers that are making like very highly respected lambics or that you guys know of well originally these were belgian beers um i mean the the style was created in in belgium uh and and, and technically like if we're going to get down to like being those types of people, like champagne can only come from the champagne province in France. Right. If we're going to be those people theoretically, well, technically lambics can only come from Belgium. But that being said, there are people who brew lambic style beers in America. That's it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I just wanted to mention quickly that um, it's funny how well-respected the style is like compared to like IPAs or like uh, even stouts, like, people put these amazing uh, expertly crafted sours and lambics in the same category as like fine wines. And like, they're much, they're very much treated the same way. And like, uh, it really is. You're, you're kind of getting closer to the wines. Like, I mean, you look at a bottle of three F and it has, um, I think I bought some 2018 bottles and I'm pretty sure that like the, it's like drink before 2038. So like you can no age shit. this beer for 20 years and 
you know, who knows what will happen. Some matches will probably get better, some will probably get worse, and some will probably stay the same. But, yeah, it's crazy to think that, you know, when you have the – you have like a two-week lifespan on some IPAs in a two-decade lifespan on a sour or a lambic. Um, and and kind of – and similar to that, um, you know, lambics in, in, in the U.S. at least, um, I feel like it's one of those things where – it's not, well, it's not, I feel like it's definitely one of those things where it's not as, because it's like a much more intricate brewing practice and it actually takes a lot more skill than the previous two episodes have talked about with New England IPAs. And then of course, you know, uh, Snickers stouts and such like that. Well, you um, can hide, you can hide behind fuck ups in your brewing practice because of all those adjuncts we talked about, all that dry hopping we talked about. Right. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I get, I guess at least I don't know if you can really hide behind it because I feel like it's, it's tough to get Lambic style, not tough to get, but you don't see a ton of Lambic style beer. I mean, the two that popped ahead, pop in my mind are spawned by Jester King, which is excellent. And then, I mean, my favorite, cause we know I'm an Allagash fanboy, but all of Allagash's cool ship, um, beers yeah. are incredible. Yeah. I agree. Um, so, so would you say that those two brewers are the are doing the closest thing to like the traditional styles? Like, I know a lot of those, like especially Allagash, they do a lot of um, like like adjunct sours or like uh, they do they take a lot of a lot of they do a lot of experimentation, I guess, with their sours. Right, and I think also, I mean, other side of the country, I'm not totally sure, but doesn't Russian River have a, a pretty solid? Um, uh, spontaneously fermented beer program as well. Yeah, from what I've read. Oh. Uh, there's one more actually um, in Portland, Oregon, or up around there. Yeah. Who is that? Uh, Can't believe I'm blanking on this. Is it Fremont? No. Uh, we shoots. No, not to shoots. They do really good not stuff. Not to shoots. I mean, back before it was bought by AB InBev, Wicked Weed was had this place called the Funkatorium, which still exists. And I know they they were doing a lot of really rad sour type stuff down in Florida, uh, but then they sold off. And I think they just kind of, you know, yeah. to be honest, once they were bought by AB InBev, I, I stopped paying attention, which I think a lot of us, you know, kind of people who are into craft beer sort of do. Um, Degard. Degard is the one I was right. thinking of. Okay. Yes, for my and, um, and side project. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there there definitely are a handful. Um, and in terms of spontaneous, you know, I know of course a lot of people are doing um, fruited sours, um, yeah. but in terms of the the lambic style, really not that many. And you know what? I kind of like it. I kind of like that too. But but I almost I want like an ambitious like like young brewer to go like learn the craft and like bring it back and see. Well, interesting you say that because the veil has a very young uh, entrepreneur who's been around in the game for a little bit now, but um, he just started in the past couple of years making Lambic style beers uh, because he has actually had experience working in Cantillon. Nice. Okay. Well, that's, I 
did not <laughs> know go. that you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. The exact thing you're looking for, a guy is doing. And, 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 and he's young, and he's had a vast amount of brewing experience, you know, working at Hill Farmstead. Um, he's, he's incredible. And he takes a lot of chances. And, you know, ever since uh, the veil kind of took off, he's really spent a lot of time working with barrels specifically. Uh, and, and some of his work is, is genius and fantastic. And sometimes it comes out being mixed, but that's kind of beer in general. Yeah. The thing I appreciate about him, sorry to go on a little tangent because I, I <laughs> uh, really, everything the veil does, they, they just own it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like even a bad beer or like a weird beer, they're not afraid you know, everybody's pushing the envelope for certain styles, but for some reason, I don't know if it's just me, but they, I, I kind of always love when they push the envelope. Like, yeah, they, I'm pretty sure were part of that collab with the fried chicken IPA, but, um, they were, we, you, you talk shit about it then. Yeah, I did. But you know, it was two weeks ago now. <laughs> you so. talk shit about someone here then too. <laughs> You know, I'm expecting yeah. an apology because right I'm now sorry, you're really I'm going sorry. hard to prevail. You know, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I that was that you. was that was not that should never have been done. But I understand what you're saying. No, and and so it should never have been done. Absolutely true. Um, but <laughs> you know, everything they've kind of done with their barrel aging uh, program, the Horn Swagglers, um, really nailing the New England IPA, and. You know, in addition to that, now taking that knowledge for, for sour, like nothing's, they're not limited at all in any way. Like they, and they don't listen to the noise because they, nope. you know, people hate on them. Um, and I appreciate the people that don't listen to the noise and do what they want to do. And that's him. I think we all like him because he's, he's very genuine. As you say, they stand behind what they do and they're never yeah. apologetic. They never come out with statements about things they just do them because why the heck not and I, I i love his inquisitiveness the fact that he's willing to consistently break rules and use certain grists with certain beer styles that shouldn't be utilized putting things in barrels that shouldn't be in barrels and and i i just i, I love that he asked the question like why not and then yeah. even if it sucks he'll sell it so you can understand that it shouldn't be done <laughs> and then and then he never makes it again. And it's just like, he has all these one-offs and they're really cool. But then he also makes these beers that people like literally will sell their children for like yeah. the, the starve series. Like back when I was in the game, <laughs> like we were fortunate enough to get starve a, but starve B was supposed to be this, just like the, the, the best thing in barrel age ever. And, and people were literally selling out their full sellers for this thing. I'm, I'm talking like the, 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 price of the bottle was probably $35 and people were, were, were spending with certain bottles of beer in the, in the after culture market, after culture, Jesus Christ, in the aftermarket of like 1200 bucks. So like a $35 bottle, and it might've been more to be honest, because there was a lot of barrel aging. So let's say between 35 to $50 aftermarket going for like 1200, 2400, 3600. It was just, it was insane to see. So the veil does things very well. Um, but going back to like talking about lambics, like leg styles are great, and 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 the reason why they're revered is because when we think about brewing, there are styles that are tried and true, right? Like people love lagers because they're light and crisp and yummy. People love ales because you know they can be kind of anything. But when you think about like the history of a specific style that kind of remains intact to the way it was, 
and hasn't shifted because of tastes, tastes, and it hasn't shifted because of tastes, the Lambic is tried and true. And, and, and when we were talking about like, you can't hide behind bad brewing practice, it's legitimate because if you take a young Lambic and you go to mix it with an older Lambic, you know, creating a goose and one of those beers sucks, it's, it will ruin both. So, so there needs to be this like consistency in your brewing style in order to be able to like, you know, year after year come out with like your oud goose as being like very good, getting similar note profile so that, you know, the people who really do drink it in, in, in like year after year and for that 30 year period, they like, they can see and taste how it changes and how it fluctuates just from being in the bottle. At the same time, in terms of inconsistency, and if you add a bad batch when you're blending, um, it also hides slight inconsistencies. So from year to year, you know, you might have something be slightly different. If it's still good, though, you know, it's still good and gets blended. But um, I think that's, you know, also adds to that consistency, consistency aspect of it. Because, you know, if two years are slightly different, but you're blending... I don't know, one year out of the three, slightly different. It, you know, it, it does bring it back too. And not to say that that one is bad. It could just be a little different. And maybe, that, and maybe that difference is what makes it so heralded as like this like incredible beer, you know, because it, it transcends that normalcy in, in, in a way that's like really delicious or wonderful. Um, right. and, and those one-offs do happen because, you know, the ingredients change, you know, weather changes. Um, you know, it might just be because it is spontaneously firmed. One of those things, uh, yeah. or maybe, you know, that newer beer with, you know, some of the yeast still active being put, uh, in with the older beer has that, again, that, that secondary fermentation happening in the bottle that really, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's exciting to think about and that's what makes it so good. And it's so specific. I think there's a lot of synergy that happens in like those that goes like the gooses that um, can't really happen with other beers. Like if, like if you combine like two, like I know a lot of people don't do this, but if you combined two stouts, you know, you're, you're probably going to be able to like taste a little bit of both and like maybe put your finger on some of the, the flavors. But when you are putting together these complex sours that are like, it's just still like, alive. Yeah. They're alive. Like, you're you're literally creating like something that becomes one. It's not it's not just yeah. like mixing. I don't know. It's just it's just on a different level of uh, make of creating something new. I guess. Yeah. No, I know what you mean, and I think that you know just that aspect that it's it's still uh, in the fermentation process really adds a uh, you know a fun little twist to what can happen. Well. What I like about it is it, it, it adds this like layer of like, once I put these two things in this bottle, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. You know, like the natural, the natural yeast within that bottle, everything within there creates its own thing, you know? And, and that's kind of exciting, you know, that this thing you're drinking that's so wonderful and delicious and has these literal, like you're not going to get the flavor profiles anywhere else in the world, which is exciting too. You know, like when you think about like a really good Lambic, <laughs> you, you certainly think of like some tasting notes, but you, you're like, it tastes like a Lambic because the nothing else in the world really has that kind of flavor profile. And that's beautiful. 
I, I know yeah. it's like I know it's like a mastered science, but it's also like it's a very primitive process of of like yeah. letting things ferment and then com- like combining things. Uh, so I, just one more thing while we're selling lambics before we kind of dive into the fruited sour, uh, just that topic in general, which I think it kind of moves away from the lambics a little bit. Uh, do those like legacy brewers make fruited lambics and? can you name anything that stands out or, or do they kind of stay away from that? Cause they're purists. Great question. <laughs> the answer is, yeah, they fuck with fruit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, uh, thank you know, God they do. <laughs> yes. Thank God. But, but to be, to be fair, like the fruits that they mess with are very, they're always the same, you know, and, and there might be some blending here and there, but for the most part, the, the kind of like the big three, are gonna are, are gonna be uh, peach, strawberry, raspberry, or like some sort of grape. Usually, okay, like yeah. oh yeah, sorry, holy shit, creeps. Yeah, creeps. It's like, literally oh, a style. style. Yeah, yeah. Sour <laughs> cherries. Sorry, guys. Sour cherries. Yeah, I I, I would actually say that number one. Sorry, uh, sorry, sorry to the sorry to the cherry. Number one is cherries, and then yeah. number two, and, and three. You know, if you've ever heard of a framboise. That is a, a um, it's a raspberry, raspberry, and then um, pesh is yeah. peach. Yeah. So those are the big three. Uh, other ones are different types of grapes, uh, strawberries, pineapples, um, other things like that, not seen as much. And, and does that stuff get shipped here from those like legacy brewers? I, I'm, I'm keep, I keep calling them that because A, I only know two of them and I, <laughs> I can say Cantillon, but the other one, no. You can just say 3F uh, like me. That's what I do. A 3F. I like that. I mean, very infrequently are they sending – okay, they send a limited amount of things from Cantillon. Like uh, sometimes the creek comes through. A lot of times iris comes through, which actually mm. isn't fruited. It's just um, dry-aged. It's okay. dry-aged and then hopped. Gotcha. Um but every once in a while, you'll see someone come in with a fufun, which is uh, aged on apricots. Uh, Creek does come through every once in a while. And then um, not really unless you're going to like a specific event, you know, Zwanza Day, are you going to run into some of the rest of them? Like, you know, Rosé de Gambrinus, uh, which is the Frambois, Nath, which is a rhubarb, uh, Vignaroni. A little foreshadowing is, here, but they're not – it's yeah. like – I'm just saying they respect the style enough to not add Skittles to it, right? <laughs> never, ever. Never anything, never anything synthetic. It's always right. natural because, like, part of the beauty of taking that fruit from the orchard is that on it is that natural yeast from that orchard. So, exactly. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it's not like they're washing these things and then they're literally just, like, chopping them up and throwing them into the beer, and that's helping it inoculate, you know? Oh, right. so, um, no, certainly no Skittles. You're never going to get a, 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 a fruited Lambic aged on Skittles. <laughs> I sure hope not. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's, let's... I, I, I think, I think before we diverge, okay. I know you really want to diverge into no, this, no, no, but no. I think we have to talk about a little bit about, you know, like this, and, and I've, and I've named this the Belgium invasion, you know, yes. about how a few years ago, and, and to be clear, Cantillon is in distribution. It ships all over the world. Um, so it's at least to get the goose, it's relatively easy to find, not easy depending on the year. However, it's insane to me how much, you know, these, these old world sours have exploded over the past couple of years. 
I feel like they've come out more. It's it's been a direct response from my perspective to uh, the, the Pastry Boys. Uh, you know, I see a lot of anti Pastry Boys still waiting in line to get the pastry stout and then flipping it for Cantillon, uh, which I think we briefly talked about last episode. But it's it's insane in how you know it really unfortunately says more of the value for a. Um, the pastry stouts than than uh, Cantillon. If you can flip, you know, a shitty sweet stout for Cantillon, of course, you know, you'd do it in a heartbeat. But it, it really has kind of been the, it's like gold. Like you can always invest in gold. You can always invest in Lambics. It's always going to be worth something. So um, right now I feel like it really has taken off as the primary, like if you have a top-notch beer right now, that you can trade like an American beer, you can get Cantillon for it. That's kind of the bar. Yeah. And, and I think it's actually kind of a natural progression. I think, you know, a, a lot of people started like drinking craft beer in the 2015, 2016 kind of boom. Uh, and it makes sense that, you know, as your tastes enhance, as you get more and more into this, um, you know, as your palate gets better, you want to have things that are better. And logically, yeah. it just makes sense that the more uh, information you seek out and the more research you do, you're going to land on Lambics. <laughs> just because, like, it really is kind of counterculture to that that ex- excess that we've been talking about for the past couple of episodes of just, like, putting way too much stuff in beer to make it as sweet and as delectable as possible. It's just like, it's literally the, the, the exact opposite. It's of going back like, to the roots of craft beer. It's, it's going back to the root of just brewing. Yeah. yeah I, th- no, I was just going to say, yeah. like, I think it, and the roots even go deeper than that, where it's like, like humans and fermentation. Like, like, I don't know if anyone else has done this. Like, I'm saying this just picking raspberries today. But if you pick, like, a, a raspberry that's just a little bit fermented and you put it in your mouth, there's something like, you know, like, you know it's kind of weird, but you, you're also like, oh, this is good for me. And I think that's I – know, I know all beer is kind of like that, but especially uh, Lambics and, like, um, and American Wild Ales, too, like, uh, like Treehouse's Native One. Or, mm-hmm. or native two or whatever all their native series are like excellent beers yeah that's a good point and and what's interesting about that for us is that we're we're tasting natural yeast from the region we live in which is actually kind of really cool yeah, yeah it's probably good for you too yeah yeah no, i agree it's really one of in my opinion the the most fun aspect of sour beer because you're eating a little bit of, or drinking a little bit of your agriculture it's yeah. kind of yeah. cool very cool. No, I agree. That's cool. And, and, and I think it comes back to what you're talking about, Justin, is that like connection to nature in a way, you know, like that beer style is much more connected to like our world than say uh, a lactose fruited IPA. Yeah. Or like, like an IPA. <laughs> it's like, it's like you could make some of these lambics and some of these sour beers, like, like almost like in nature, if you had just enough, but like to, to get like, six pounds of like hop pellets to make like a triple hops, <laughs> like double IPA or something. It was like, it's just, it's and so then, far removed from, from natural humanity. And then going back to Skittles, like you talked about putting that literally in an IPA, which has been done. There and you go. Sour, and a sour, which was. Even, oh, that's true. Was a sour. <laughs> yeah. oh, God. Um, but just to, you know, uh, uh, again, uh, as this progressions evolved, it's been, 
harder and harder for those of us who do enjoy the style to get it, to attain it, because those those uh, those prices to to get it are so high. But also, you know, for those of us who who love the beer culture aspect of the of the Zwanza Day experience, it's it's kind of gone. <laughs> yeah, if you no? ever got the chance to go to Zwanza Day between like twenty, I don't know, fifteen and twenty. 17, 18, those, or at least for us, because that's when it was, you know, craft beer was booming. There was a, a huge surge for everyone. And just before it got a little too intense yeah. for Swans a day, that was just the peak. I mean, in well, going back as, as we kind of discussed, I, I went to uh 2016 uh, Swans a day, uh, Tony, you went to 2017 and then we thought, Hey, we should all try to get to, 2018 um together we'll just get tickets you know they go on sale 7 p.m let's do it uh and we all log on at 7 p.m i got one ticket and it sold out in 17 seconds i got zero tickets i i I got zero tickets but but i think i think a part of like your point of why it was so good then is because like as craft beer was booming I think the people like in the game, like uh, Armsby Abbey and like places, places that try to promote like really excellent beer, they're they were trying to like outdo each other. Like I'm sure Armsby was like trying to get, uh, you know, certain beers from overseas that that everyone's trying to get. And if you get it and you make your you make your event like that much better than other people's, I mean, that's a that's good goal. There was an insane amount of of Cantillon beer at the 2017 Zwanza Day. And, and I think it has to do a little bit, as you were saying, with the, that relationship between Armsby Abbey, specifically, and Cantillon, the brewery, because they have Cantillon throughout the year. Yeah, and that's big. Also, just to give a little context here for anybody that may not know what Zwanza Day is, uh, Zwanza yeah. Day is essentially Cantillon brews this one batch of beer. Um, and I believe they just, I don't know how they choose. So this is, you know, where the, you know, send us an email if any of these facts aren't <laughs> facts. Um, but essentially they, they choose venues across the world and it's actually really rare. I know in, in Massachusetts here, there's typically been two locations a year that are, that are chosen two or three. Um, you know, Armsby Abbey, Trillium hosted a few, Lord Hobo, um, hosted a few, and, you know, those are really, I think there's one actually out of Springfield, but that's, you know, too far. That's basically upstate New York for us. Um, so long story short, they brew this weird funky beer um, and they distribute it. And at a certain time, I think it's three o'clock Eastern time, I believe. Um, so whatever that is for Belgium, everybody, there's like a worldwide cheers. Everybody raises their glass and, and drinks this um, this annual celebration beer made by Cantillon. So really, in my opinion, the absolute coolest thing about beer culture that the whole world at the same time is yeah. raising a glass, cheersing each other, uh, and really cheersing Cantillon for just being the shit. I mean, it, it comes back to that sense of community that really has been and is the whole purpose of, of, of really drinking good beer. It's getting together with those you love and sharing something that like is meaningful and Swan today per- perfectly encapsulates that. And I'm just, 
you know, I, I guess in a way I'm a little bit butthurt because like I didn't get to go in 2018 and by 2019, we're just like, forget about it because we're not going to yeah. even get a ticket. We're, it's like, that's the kind of mentality that you go through as you progress. And it's just like, I'd love to get back there because I, it, it, it really is a beautiful thing. Everyone cheersing at the same time, drinking at the same time. It's just this like, everyone's together and, and you're one. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I think last year we did our own little beer share on Swan today. I could be wrong. I know we did in 2018 because we were definitely butthurt about not being able to go. <laughs> so. I was so upset. And then I got an email like literally the day of 30 minutes before being like, hey, uh, we, someone's, someone's willing to sell you their ticket. And I was it was like, probably me. I know it wasn't, but <laughs> you know. Oh, man. Uh, At that point, I'm like, I'm not going to go by myself and just stand there mm-hmm. like Steven Glansberg. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I read, oh wait, I want to read this one quote it says while well, 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 we're still talking about like these like really high quality beers I thought this was funny from this uh, New Yorker article about sour beers it says with pH akin to a good Pinot Noir the best make it onto serious menus the worst taste of nail polish remover rotten apple coconut or you're going to love this Tony the dreaded baby diaper because i know you've said that before <laughs> like diaper is a real like tasting note thanks to so you're some- saying when i say that something tastes like baby diaper and 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 it's because i hate the beer i'm i'm actually that's a tasting note no somehow you somehow you have been exposed to that taste and you know it <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have any kids. I know. It's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> I don't even eat diapers. <laughs> I don't know. I guess if you're in the vicinity of anything, you can kind of taste it, right? You know, like, whatever. But it's also, <laughs> it's a testament to how hard it is to, like, nail down flavors in some of these complex sours. Like, it's not like, it's not like tasting a, uh, a you know, a, a pastry stout where you're like, oh, there's maple syrup and coconut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, similar yeah, to that, no, there was one time I had a, a beer with, with – Oh, here it comes, everybody. Blue cheese. Oh. It tasted exactly like blue cheese. Was and it I a sour? Essentially sat, yeah, I forget exactly what beer it was. And I okay. sat in the corner, basically, the whole time <laughs> we were you know, savoring this, this beer that everybody loved and thought tasted like blueberries or whatever it was. And I'm like, blue cheese, blue cheese, and just <laughs> you know, spewed my bullshit for a solid uh, – you know, 15, 20 minutes. And, we had yeah. like just gotten back from a wedding. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And yeah. like, we were just opening some beers, trying to like, you know, finalize the night. And, and I think you like saved something nice from, um, from, uh, da, 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 that place you love. Why is it out of my head? Definitely not Allagash. Yeah. I think it was from Allagash. No, 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 no. I would no? never, they would never brew blue cheese unless they wanted to. Okay. Um, well, and then they would, it would be great. And I have a feeling that it was Allagash and that you did taste blue cheese and you were the only one and everyone's like, mm, I don't know about that. And you're like, it's blue cheese. It's blue cheese. It's blue cheese. <laughs> I, uh, I'll think of what it was. You know, what? I'll scroll back on my untapped and, and I'll figure it out. That's... I think it was something from Liquid Riot, but I could be wrong. Or no, I don't know. Whatever. Um, definitely not Liquid Riot. Sorry, Liquid Riot. Uh, That's the chance you take. That's the chance you take. For the listeners, it was Allegash. Oh, uh, man. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's and, – and that was not a Lambic. That was uh, – I think what we were having was either a Kettle Sour or, like, a Berliner Weiss. 
Yeah, I think it was. Um, yeah, which actually is a good, a good. It's a great point segue. now to uh, transition off of lambics because we've been talking about them because of the past, <laughs> but we've been talking about them for far too long now. And and really, how this, I honestly don't know how. Like, of course, lambics are popular now, but I feel like concurrently there was also a big sour beer surge um, that died really quick, in my opinion, it in did. the U.S. And, and what I think back to, I remember talking to one of my friends in 2016 who was trading uh, some local fresh hops for, uh, <laughs> for some rare barrel. Dude, that guy's and, a fucking uh, nerd. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but rare barrel at the time was rare. Uh, and now, you know, they're kind of the collecting the dust on the shelf barrel. Because <laughs> you walk into a craft beer store, and there's nothing against how good their, their beer is. They have great beer. But the fact from 2016 that you had to trade cross-country, um, you know, Treehouse Trillium, fresh anything for this delicious sour beer, um, and, and now it's just collecting dust on a shelf. It, it's yeah. weird. And, you know, I think uh, part of that, and, and I was reading an article, I don't know, where is this, uh, from time magazine um that essentially said in, in 2016 uh, or maybe it's 2015 about 45,000 cases of sour beer were sold in the u.s and that like it was five times that the next year mm-hmm. and i think it was one of these things where once everybody got a feel for it or thought they did everybody had it all of a sudden and if everybody has it it's no longer special. What, what can I ask you something? When do you think that the uh, the sour craze kind of like like lost steam? So I think it was gaining steam still in like 2016, 2017. I thought it was going to be the next big thing. I thought it was going to overtake the uh, New England IPA around here. I think they were um, still big in 2018. I, I, s- I think they were definitely big, but it's not. It wasn't. Um, you know, I, I think they're still very popular. It's just it went from being a rare style, at least around here, to everybody has it now. So yeah. it's still popular. People still like it. But, um, you know, like we've talked about, supply and demand is not always, you know, it, it, craft breweries don't follow supply and demand because if you have the supply, there's no demand. So I think I think brewers, like, like in breweries – they they know they're like average consumer, which like really isn't us. It's like, um, it's your everyday person where, uh, you know, they're, they're going out to get a, a hazy IPA. That's like your average person. now. They're not going out thinking, I want to try a fruited sour or a sour or whatever. Uh, and, and sorry, just to fact check myself, uh, this, Time Magazine article by Mahita Gajanin. Uh, it was 45,000 cases in 2015, quintupled to 245,000 cases in 2016. And this article was in 2017 and was still set to rise an additional 9% uh, in 2017. And I assume 2018 as well. Um, sorry, just had to throw my facts out there. I think what kind of halted some of the momentum is just the introduction of, of uh these like kombucha type sours that a lot of people are doing now. And obviously the seltzers, which are not beer, but like uh, breweries have them now. I think it was kettle sours. Yeah. I think they destroyed the market 
because they were too much and they branded sours as being this one like one noted type beer where it's just burns on the way down burns the whole time it's in and then burns on the way out and it just like <laughs> i think it really rubbed people the wrong way i i, I think that's the reason why for a, a, a while a long while that the goza became like the sour style of beer it really I think you're right and and also for the breweries making it would you rather have a two to three week turnaround for a, a kettle sour or barrel something for 18 months so these poor breweries that did it the right way invested in all these barrels not cheap and you know have a, their own kind of native yeast strain and they're pitching you know that yeast into their barrels um and then you know they have to wait 18 months or, or whatever you know however long and other breweries all of a sudden just started cranking out these um these kettle sours that you know a lot of them are delicious but uh it kind of followed in my opinion a similar weird trend to why do craft beer drinkers love their esophagus to feel burned yeah those beers are way too acidic they taste way too metallic they're like it turned into like a oh i love i love the sour like i love when i can you know really feel the burn in my throat and i'm like why though and i i actually well, I, I just I think a lot of people like like kind of misinterpret that a ke- like kettle sour like people who are newbies kind of think that that's like funk, but it's yeah, literally not. It's, it's the op- It's like it's, the it's like yeah, it's not funk. It's There's nothing funk. It's literal. It's literal acid. It's yeah. not pleasant. I think overall, it, it like if done well, it is enjoyable. But I think because things just got, you know, so much, we were consuming so much, it got to the point, like, similar with the, with the you know, the pastry boys. It started making us feel ill. And, yeah. and for me in general, like, if I have even, uh, let's say, four ounces of a kettle sour now, um, I'm, I'm down for the count. Like, I will not sleep that night. I, I won't. And unfortunately, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not even just the kettle sours. I think it's, um, I think it's been difficult for some breweries to grasp the, well, this beer has been in barrels for 18 months and it came out not what we expected. So let's throw, throw some fruit in it and yep. see what happens. And, you know, it's a little better it passes and it's, you know, people don't really know, or for a while didn't know what to expect because it was rare. And when they got this, bomb of just burn uh from the sourness i think it was accepted for a while um absolutely until we you know especially with the kettle sours we go into the excessive amounts of fruiting um because there are some that are delicious and not sour but at that point you know if you give me a glass of raspberry puree and just raspberry puree I'm going to love it. So I, yeah. why do I need to put a shitty beer in it now too? I was waiting for you to say that you were going to hate it. And I was going to say that is the one thing you can never add enough of in a beer is raspberry. That's true. Yeah, no, well, and, but it's always thing, delicious. Though, fruit puree in general, that became like, like breweries bread and butter to make a sour that like will sell and, and also get a lot of hype. Like, yeah. you know, unapologetically, we all love the veil. We talked about it already, but like when they first started creating those, Fruit puree, um, people were freaking out. Like, never again 
was such a high, high, high rated beer when it first came out and the trade values was insane. And then, you know, okay. They're like, we've established these single fruit puree <laughs> gozas. Let's make doubles. Never, never again, again. Oh my God. It's even juicier. You know, juice is loose. You know what I'm saying? People are going wild in the streets. They're literally, they're tearing down houses to get these things. They're like, give me it, give me it. And then they're like, you know what we're going to do to these people now? Triple fruit. It goes this motherfucker. <laughs> like, how many, how many metric tons of raspberry puree are we going to put in this batch of beer? And now it's a triple imperial fruited goza and, and everyone's freaking out even more. So I, I, I don't know. I, I will say once it went to the triples, some of them were as good as the doubles, but most of the time they were worse. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. And this is where I kind of, in, as we've discussed in every episode up to this point, kind of where at least one of us falls off on a trend. And I still, you know, they taste delicious. But once again, what's the difference from drinking just a glass of juice at this point? There's none. Yeah. Like what is the fascination with craft beer was that it was impressively brewed and this whole beautiful process of creating really, you know, something that is new and different, but also true to its own roots. And, um, you know, maybe all these craft brewers are just true to their excessive amounts of everything, whether it's fruit or hops or candy bars. Um, I mean, at this point, it didn't taste like a goza. It's, you know, there, there was no like, you know, salt finish, which is classic for the style. You know, it was just, it's fruit. And I guess to go back to your question, what's the difference between just a, a cup of raspberry fruit puree, fruit puree, it's that small amount of alcohol that comes with it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> And, and that's interesting because, like, when we're thinking about these, like, insane uh, fruit puree uh, concoctions, like, who did it better than the answer? No one. The Andals. Those, like, th- three, three scoops of coconut, oh. and they were just, like, these, like, 25 different fruits in there. Just unbelievable. Mm. But that, were, and that literally was not a beer drinking experience. No. No, it, it's a smoothie drinking yeah. experience, surely. It's it's like those smoothies that you buy at like the supermarket that are like pre-blended in the plastic bottles, but it's like <laughs> orgasmic. Like and, and it, the flavors explode in your mouth. Yes, it was back then, especially back in 2016, 2017 when we got them because they were so freaking outrageously expensive uh, for a crowler. Uh, yes. It was a wonderful experience. They were so fruity. They were so vibrant. Um, but did you ever hear the rumor about the answer? I, 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 I know I've heard it. I've heard it. Lay it on us. Okay. The rumor floating around was that they literally took the Anderson Valley Goza, Ooh. which is a great beer and a great um, representation of the style. Of the style. It's, it's, yeah, it's a great representation of the style. And then I heard that they just literally like blended fruits and put them in there. And that's why they only had Andals uh, one day a week. <laughs> because they like literally the night before just like did all the crawlers and then sold them out the next day at like $30 a crawler or whatever they were, something ridiculous. And um, yeah, so I don't know. Again, 
might not be real, but Anderson Valley goes with fruit puree equals the Andal series. I hate to say that that is the exact kind of thing you would probably see in the craft beer industry these days. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't want to say it's, you know, tell them. I have no idea if it's true or not. Yeah, but, again, it's, it's a rumor. There's a rumor going around. But, you know, we like to talk about rumors, and let's pretend they're real for a second. Uh, I could see that happening in a heartbeat. Anything to get the competitive edge. It, it's turned into, you know, who has the most fruit, who has the most hops, who has the most whatever. And, yeah, if they found a good way to, to take a solid Goza, you know, a good representation and, you know, add some peaches – or everything else and they can sell <laughs> Strawberries, it. bananas and peaches. Yeah, exactly. Triple scoop, scoop, whatever it was called. And they can sell it fine. But you know, don't, you know, don't shit on lion kugels then either. I guess. I, I respect the, like the resourcefulness, like the creativity and like the entrepreneurship of coming up with an idea like that. But I, res- I, I respect everything, but the brewing practices, which is like, which is kind of, it's ironic because in the beginning of this podcast, we're, we're, we're talking about how it's like a, it's like a, uh, a style to be respected. It's, it's like, like, the, you know, the original styles. And then, and it, again, just like with stouts and just like without IPAs, it becomes this bastardized thing where you literally have some like new kid at, uh, the answer, like cracking cans of Anderson Valley Goza, like all day long, pouring them into a vat. Like, I it's hope they up. at least got a keg, you know? Yeah, yeah no, knows? I was going to say, I was thinking it through that, but it's like, I'm sure they could get kegs, but still, it's like, even that would take a while if you're brewing, like, an amount to can. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I, it just always comes back to that conversation of excess to me. You know, it's like, how far do we push that envelope before it's too far? And uh, in my opinion, like, you know, all of us talk about Lambics with this such high esteem, but Agoza is, a, is an old world style as well. It's been, it, you know, it, it was created in Germany and, and it's been around for a long time as a brewing style. And why is it okay that we totally take this beautiful style of beer and just bastardize it for the purpose of profit uh, when, you know, if anyone were to do that to a Lambic, beer snobs would be like this person is the devil you know yes but at the end of the day did we like did we like drinking it my vote is hell yeah you sure fucking did (laughs) it's it's funny because i i feel like it it's one of those cases where yes it's gone too much but at the same time i feel like it's been super easy to ignore because if you look at it the good lambics are the most popular still out of the sour ish uh, style, or at least the most sought after. You know, they're rare, but it's the most sought after. And then you have the top tier breweries in the U.S. that are doing it, like Allagash. I mean, their sours are so highly regarded in, in, in this area, at least by me and everyone else. Um, <laughs> but, and, you know, DeGard and Jester King and all these breweries that, you know, it's pretty clear which ones are the best because it is the ones they're the ones that people want you can go to any brewery now and get a fruited kettle sour and yeah you might get your people that geek out over it and be like oh my god i can taste the raspberries in this raspberry goza i sure hope so i really (laughs) sure hope so because you're really just drinking 
raspberries yeah. on a shitty base beer that's got some kind of kettle souring magic. I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a it's an easy it's easy to make things that are you know this 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 type of excess that we're talking about that we can con- continue to talk about. But like, there's also really great examples of something that has balance, you know, tartness, but also some light sweetness and maybe just a tad of funk. And if you can brew something with that and like get some of those flavor profiles, those are some of the most enjoyable experiences from a sour, you know, you're not burning yourself by drinking it. (laughs) It, There's like some, some balance to it. And I, I think if, that that comes back to good brewing practices. If you can make a great Berliner Weiss, a great wild ale, and, you know, of course, you, you might put some barrel age on it, you might put some fruit on it, but if you can make something that's balanced overall, that's the art. That's the art. I agree, and I think this is, in my opinion, the one place so far where the too much aspect of the style has kind of been rejected. Not totally rejected, but overall... I think people are like, no, you know, your fruited goes, it tastes delicious. I'll drink it, but uh, give me the Cantillon and, or give me the, the Spawn or the Cool Ship Resurgum. Really, anything else, give me the good beer. And I think that's kind of the, the one aspect where the too much has not taken over. And I like that. I have a little more faith in craft beer drinkers now. Yeah, I... Uh, another thing just to say about the style in general um, is I feel like it, it has like the widest window of opportunity of what, what you can do with it and, and, and it's appeal to the average consumer. Like you can make a million sours that are just like light, drinkable, tasty to the average person. And I think they just have to market them a little bit better, honestly. And um figure out a figure out a way to just bring them into the public more because like you said i thought i thought like between 2016 and 2018 that would be like the style that that really like brought beer to a new an even new market but it kind of just seems like it's been stuck it's been a while since we've mentioned this but isn't it kind of weird that treehouse never went down that path really yeah they really haven't maybe they just knew they started too recently. Oh, they did. Okay. Yeah, they native. Been, they're called tarts. Oh, they, right. Of course, the tarts. But they didn't, um, in terms of the, they didn't really, you know, they had their native program, but they didn't start this extensive barrel program, to my knowledge. Um, it's nope. just interesting. Interesting to see the trends. Interesting to see which of the powerhouses in our area uh, latch on to that trend, which of them take it too far, which of them, Try to stay true to the style. Yeah, no, I agree. Should we talk about some of our sour experiences? Maybe our, like some of our best, maybe some of our worst. Yeah, take it away. Uh, all right. Um, so one of one of the first sour experiences that I remember was drinking a beer that is no longer brewed and it was salty case peaches at cold harbor and i just remember it was i think it was my the first goza i'd ever had and 
and not that it was the saltiest goes I've ever had, but for not knowing that it was going to be salty and my first sip, like it was amazing, but it was, it was like very surprising at the same time, but it gets like a different reaction out of your body than like a regular beer because of the saltiness and um, some like, I don't, I don't think that beer was like a funky beer. It might've been a little bit funky, but you know, it was just a different experience. It's, I had a, a similar first experience um, and actually not that similar, but, uh, but it, you made me, you reminded me of the first time I had a sour beer and I didn't totally get what sour beer was and I hated it. It wasn't fruited. It wasn't, it wasn't a great sour beer anyway, but um, you know, it just really caught me off guard and I feel like that first time it, you know, it often does. And, you know, a lot, I know a lot of people kind of gain their sour beer palates starting with fruited styles. And I, I do think it's easier. Um, but at the same time, I think if it's brewed well and you do like that funk, you're going to like it your first try. If you have, you know, if you can get a, a super high quality, um, super high quality beer. I think the first time I had a, a sour beer and was super into it, uh, was Red Stonington by Trillium, which was uh, a raspberry, I believe, a raspberry sour that um, really just an excellent beer. Um, fan of their wild program. And I feel like they've stayed pretty true to the what they think should be, um, you know, those, those barrel aging styles and how they should taste. And um, I, I appreciate that, even though I didn't know anything about it at the time. Um, also just another super fun beer that I love is the Westbrook Goza Westbrook from, I think it's just outside Charleston, South Carolina, but their Goza is also just great representation of the style. So if you ever see one, pick one up. Is that a hard beer to get or can you get it at like local? You can't get it up here. Okay. Um, it's in distro down there though. Yeah, exactly. Comes up to about like the DC line. It's just a good beer. It is a a good beer. Um, I mean, there's been so many excellent like sours and, and as we're talking, like I'm just trying to go through it in my mind of like what I thought great sours were at that time. I guess for me, it keeps, I, I keep coming back to this like farmhouse ale and, and depending on who brews the farmhouse, like it can be sour. I, I, I find that most often they do. They have like a kind of sour spunk, even though they're like technically more of a Saison. Um, but to me, this beer um, that we've had a few times, the Pession Brett, Yes. Um, by, by Logsdon Farmhouse Ales is like one of the, when I think about a truly balanced sour, um, that to me is one of the best that I've ever had. Um, when, I'm, when I'm thinking about like, not just great because it's super fruity, not just great for tart, not great because it's been put in a barrel, which gives it like this like really intense complexity, but just like a truly beautifully brewed beer. Um, is the passion bread that yes. to me is, is my everything it's like crisp it's clean it's delicious uh it's mildly sweet it's mildly tart you know that bretonomyces saisani bubblegummy type uh bit is in there um very well rounded super drinkable um quite enjoyable i, I want to quickly mention because i didn't mention it earlier was the uh and you you can find them almost at any liquor store that i've been to especially around here with we have really good craft Brew, uh, brew selections at our liquor stores, but um, 
the Farmer's Reserve series from Almanac, some of those are incredible and they're, I think they're pretty uh, reasonably priced. You, you can get most of them for like 10 bucks and they're excellent. I agree. Um, should we talk about, yeah, let's talk about um, like how it, how sours impact your experience, whether you're going to a brewery or even just drinking at home. And, and the thing that I can, uh, the thing that I go to right off the bat is just like, it's such a distinct, um, different, uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's such a, uh, drastic change from like the normal styles of beer that you're drinking. And it's, it's super refreshing if you're drinking a bunch of IPAs or stouts. And like, if, if you have a flight, that has four or five beers on it and two of them are sours. It is an, it's an excellent way to break up flavors of other beers. Um, well, if we're talking about like specific places that I like will go to because of their sour beers, um, some, a, a brew we've actually have not talked about yet. And I don't know how we haven't when we're talking about consistency and brewing practice, but Suarez uh, family brewery just, unbelievable to me how good they do it and how simple they do it. Um, they only brew certain styles, but they always do, um, you know, fruited farmhouses, which again, I think do kind of rustle with sour uh, complexity. So some, some of the beers that I've had from them have been absolutely out of this world, especially their light beers. Like their Pilsners are to die for. Um, their, their um, pale ales are to die for. It's just, they, they make very specific things, but I will purposely go to that brewery purposely. If I see them, that they have a farmhouse there, uh, especially some of the fruited ones, which all the fruit comes from local farms near their brewery. Um, that to me is a place that I will seek out to try and get their, um, their sour beers and just their beer in general. All right. Should we get to the, uh, the palate cleanser yeah all right, all right boys so today's palate cleanser comes to us from brewbound.com um you know we've talked about this a time or two but um hard seltzers yeah i mean drink. came up tonight i mean i think i think hard it's a good uh topic for this episode because i think the hard seltzer market has stolen a lot of the oomph out of this, the, uh, the sour market. And I don't really mean like the, uh, the legacy, like Lambics and stuff like that, but you know, like just your regular Anderson Valley goes as your, um, even, even some of the kombucha stuff like the seltzers are really like, I, I don't like what they're doing to the, to the market in general. Interesting. I, uh, I, I don't I like actually, that you can get them at breweries. So I actually, I look at the seltzer, uh, and maybe this is just because it's me personally, but I look at, look at it as um, a revolt against the too much. Mm, that's to fair. To the point where we, or at least I, I'm on the seltzer bandwagon. I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm not ashamed. Give me a mango white claw. All day, um, because in all honesty, if I if my other option is, you know, a kettle sour with a shitload of mango in it, um, you know, that's got hangover written all over it. And if I'm sitting back at the beach, just hanging at a friend's house, 
watching the bees play, I'm crushing the white claw because it's refreshing. And I think I wouldn't have been like this years ago, but once craft beer started to lose the refreshing aspect, um, you know, I, I kind of, I joined and it's not the only thing I drink by any means, but, um, you know, still, still have a, a deep love for craft beer. But right now, um, I think this is the boot in the ass that the craft beer industry needs, except they're just accepting it and all brewing their own seltzers now. So, I mean, it, it just comes from, again, you just spoke to it, the, 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 the excess in the market, you know, like, no one needs a quadruple, triple IPA, you know, and, and it speaks to the fact that like we're, we as, as consumers are hungry for light styles, you know, we're, we're hungry for things that we can drink and enjoy uh, sitting on your back porch, enjoying a nice summer's night, you know, and, and what's interesting about this article is that it talks about, cause last weekend was the 4th of July and it talks about how, um, Hard seltzers had a 134% increase in market share uh, from last year, 2019, July 4th, to this year, 2020, July 4th. Um, $138 million were made that weekend alone just from hard seltzers. <laughs> I think you're going to see that number probably either do the exact same thing or even be even crazier next year too. Yeah, and I, it's interesting just because there are – you know, the White Claws and the Trulies are gaining their steam still, um, but introduce the Nooners now. High Noons. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, those are kind of hitting the market pretty hard right now, too. They're good. And, uh, They're expensive. Also, They're more expensive. Yeah, they are, they are more expensive. Um, I don't know. They're yeah. equally refreshing, though, and it's all cheaper than craft beer. That's the, uh, that's the problem. Be, it is a problem and be careful what you wish for about saying that you're like kind of like about it because the the bigger the market share that these like trulies and white claws get like they are going to start introducing more drinks that aren't necessarily seltzers that take away from the sour market share because like like even truly they just released some lemonades which are amazing and like very drinkable and uh, they're going to keep coming up with shit like that. I guarantee you. It's, it's just a pendulum. And, you know, it, right now it's going to, I mean, in a way it's circling back to Mike's Hard Lemonade, isn't it? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah totally with is, that, truly. Yeah. Which is and insane. Smirnoff. Yeah. Smirnoff was the number five um, highest selling alcohol product. Number one being White Claw, two being Truly, Bud Light, Corona, and Fair enough. That was that was this year. For this year, those were the top five selling alcoholic beverages for the July July Fourth, twenty twenty. That's fucking wild, dude. You know, also the Smirnoffs, and I don't want sweet. I just don't want sweet. I don't want artificially sweet. And that's you know, like that's where I kind of draw the line there too. And I'm sure, just like everything else, it will go to that extreme where we'll have, you know, it starts out at seltzer and then it goes to lemonade and what's next. And then hopefully what I want to see, because this is the rebuttal I wanted two years ago was Pilsners and loggers, which is it's trying. They're trying so hard to make a comeback. It's just 
for some reason they're not sexy. I just I, just I can't believe it's Smirnoff. Like a, like Smirnoff is like like an alcoholic's Gatorade. I I just can't understand how not every brewery can just have one tap line. Always have a Pilsner, a Lager, or a Kolsch. I just don't understand why why you we should have always to sell, have it. Why it, we have it, to sell twelve IPAs? It, it just yeah. makes no sense to me that we can't just have something crushable on the menu all the time because this is the time where people want that. That's the time where we crave it. And it's it, funny you say that actually because uh, in my limited time in the brewing industry. Um, that and whenever we crush some beers after work, it was always that it was IPAs, you know, a dozen IPAs, double IPAs, um, handful of pastry stouts, fruit sours, and then one or two pilsners or pilsners or lagers, and all of the staff would just only crush the pilsners and lagers, and those are the people that are making the beer. Well, that's because they know the effects. You can drink yeah. those beers but heavily. And, and they also, you know, I think there's also that pride that goes in it too when, you know, when you brew a good Pilsner or lager and there is the the skill more so yeah. associated with that instead of just dumping raspberries and something. Well, and it I'm comes nuts. back to the conversation. There's nothing to hide behind, you know. You nothing have to, to hide behind. Purpose. Just a good beer. If you did a good job, it tastes food style. It tastes good. If you do a bad job, it's going to taste like a – a real gross piece of crap. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, just one last thing to kind of discern from the article to me is that you guys were kind of talking about it, that from beer dollar sales went down from this July 4th from last by 0.8%. So that's... will that continue to increase as time goes on? You know, to be 0. fair... 0.8%, though, that's not... I it's mean, that's a lot. It's not a lot. Trending upwards, and this is trending down. I'm curious because there's also been a resurgence of macro breweries. How much more of that? And of course, Fourth of July, especially too. Yeah. Um, but like, know, how much more? Corona, that, yeah. Uh, Natty Light. You know, those are three of the top the ten. The Miller Lights, the Coors Lights, all of that. You know, I. Uh, I think that's. I I would love to see that broken out to see what the. The macro verse craft micro beer would be because I wouldn't be surprised if you're going to see a hit on that micro beer, micro brewery margin there. I think it's inevitable. I mean, it's, it's already happening. And I mean, 0.8% doesn't sound like a lot, but it kind of is. And I, I especially, I mean, I think you could partially attribute that number to like, obviously what's going on, like with the virus and everything, but like people not coming together, like, you know, you have a cookout, you buy like two thirty racks. That's a lot. Hot take. I think that uh, it would have been lower than 0.8 if it weren't for the pandemic. Because I, 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 can I think see people that. just like to drink. You know, I think hard times, people want their beer. And especially seeing, essentially what this tells me, if seltzer gained that much more market share and beer only went down, a fraction of a percent. That just means people are drinking a lot right now. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So cheers to that. Yeah, cheers to that, boys. All right. All right. Final conclusion. I mean, uh, what? so what do you think? Did, like, did things go wrong? I mean, I feel like we're coming to the same conclusion every episode where... They- well, uh, you know, to be fair, we thought the pastry stats went a little too far. 
That one, that's an um, easy one. They went way too far. I think the IPA, we all said it didn't. I'm going to say it did not go too far because I don't think that sour beer gained, or at least the, the poorly brewed sour beer gained enough of the market share in my just perspective, my opinion, um, for a long enough amount of time for me to say that it went wrong. I think that there's definitely beers that went wrong, but I think you can say that about any style always. And overall, I think Cantillon and Dreyfontaine and all of these um, Belgian breweries are still highly regarded. They're true to their roots, and there's a lot of great sour beer in in the States that um, really is, in my opinion, holding – even the Lambic-style ones, I think, are holding that esteemed – style um and i think they're respecting it and doing it well i disagree i think that fruited sours went wrong in two areas the first being that brewers felt it was okay to put more fruit in beer than beer in beer um the excessive amount of fruit in the style of goza went too far in that you are not drinking a beer any longer. You are drinking a cup of juice with mm. a splash of booze. That's too far. There's no focus on the practice. It's more so on the sellability. I totally agree with you. But I think from my perspective, it's just such a minor blip to a certain extent. You can kind of just ignore it. And I think, because I do totally agree with all that. I've, you know, you both know I've said that also for, you know, we've all agreed on that for a long time. And I think the problem is that it's just not easy to get those good sours or good, you know, the Lambics. And um, yeah, I totally agree. But. And my second point is that uh, fruited sours went too far in that they made beer that was so acidic, it became corrosive, which destroyed its own market. I believe that, People don't really go for sours anymore because of how kind of toxic they've become over time. Um, and those are my two points as to why I think uh, fruited sours went too far. I, I like your second point, but I think where I don't, my only gripe with the second point is, and, and I think it's just a testament to how crazy like the whole like hazy IPA style got, but I think you could make that same argument for the hazy IPA where it's like um, it went too far, but it didn't turn people off. Like those beers are corrosive. Those beers are very hard to drink as well, but people still just like people have like brainwashed themselves to like, to enjoy that. And while I, I actually think it's, I'm on the fence. I don't think that sours have been ruined or like, I don't think anything's gone wrong yet, but I think it definitely could go wrong. And the reason I say that is because I think right now, as it stands, we got pretty close to ruining fruited sours. Like you said, the corrosiveness of some of the the kettle sours and then just like the excess of adding fruit purees, that's one thing. But I think the style as a whole has the most opportunity for growth and for appeal to like average people. And I think, so I don't think the opportunity is lost. But I think they got close to losing it. I, and actually, Tony, your second point kind of like really just, I, I'm pretty conflicted now in all honesty because 
it, and I even said earlier when we were early this episode. Um, it was your point. It was my point that shelf it, bees. It was, it was the next trend. It was. It was. I thought it was going to overtake the New England IPA, and it literally burned itself with acid. So, I think from that perspective, I do agree. Um, but at the same time, I look at it and the beers, the Allagash in particular around here, um, and just the really good fruited sours. I don't. Part of me doesn't. It doesn't need to be this big thing, and I think that those are still. There's still a large population that stayed true to its roots. So I think the sour beer revolution absolutely failed. It should have. It needed to, and it did. But at the same time, I think it's two different things happening because the ones that stayed true, the innovativeness failed. The true to the roots succeeded. So I think that's you know. That's I think, where we differ. Yeah, and that leaves the worth same. It's just my opinion. And that leaves a lot of opportunities still. Well, very valid points, and there you have it. One agree, one disagree, and one potentially um, <laughs> for did fruited sours go too far? Make I'm sorry, but we're going to have to do a second episode on this because this is there's just too much too much to cover. Thus yes. concludes. The episode on fruited sours at the canning run. Thank you again for listening. Peace out. Bye. Thank you again for listening to episode three of the canning run podcast. Join us next week for uh, some special outdoor episodes and some tasting episodes. Cheers. Cheers.